0: I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Birth rates in the U.S. have been dropping for the past 50 years. A lot of women, a lot of couples, Are choosing to take a different route, to go childless. And there is a stigma that is still around that choice. And that's why Ruby Warrington wrote the book, Women Without Kids. It's a radical reframing of a taboo topic about what it means to be not a mom. What does your life look like? Why are you? feeling like you've done something wrong. And how do we change that in society when that is where society has gone? And in this interview with Ruby, I I really think about it in terms of the construct of how we make everything because of the media and because of shifting societal norms into this binary conversation. You're a stay-at-home parent, you're a working parent, you're a mom or you're childless. And especially women set each other up as a foe, as an adversary, when we really need to be creating a community around womanhood and whatever that means, because we're here fighting for the ability to have choice and advancement your choices and everything that you want to do should be empowering and we need to empower each other. I loved speaking with Ruby. This book was eye-opening to me because it wasn't really a perspective that I thought about that much before. And even though I, I have a lot of women in my life who for different reasons are childless and I'm really glad that she opened this conversation to the wider public community women, and I really loved speaking with her. So thank you for opening my eyes to this and the rest of the Second Shift communities as well. I came across you and your book, Women Without Children, and I thought it was such a fascinating idea to dive into women who don't have kids, because we as a community are working women, And we, at the second shift, made a very conscious decision early on that it was not about being a working mother. Mm. That when we pull all of the women in our network, it's like we have been the majority of women that were working parents. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, care is one of the reasons why women leave the full-time workforce. So, Mm -hmm. and initially when we started, we were for people who were looking for project based work, consulting, coming back into the workforce. So it kind of lent itself to that storyline. But as we grew as a business, as we were like seeing who was in our membership, a lot of women were coming to us. Who had not made that choice, who Mm -hmm. were just sort of off on their own, doing their thing, whether they had kids or didn't. A lot of women didn't have kids. A lot of women had grown kids, and that wasn't what their experience was. So it's more like opening the aperture of what you think about when you think about womanhood and Mm -hmm. professional women. And so I'm so glad that this book does that because it's shining a light into an area and a conversation that is something I haven't thought about before. And it's not negating your experience. It's just an experience that I haven't put that much thought into. Mm -hmm.
1: So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for being interested in hearing more about it and for being interested in actually having this conversation because the decision, if it is a decision, whether or not to become a parent, meaning if it's a choice, is really at the center of every woman's life. And it will have a profound impact on her career trajectory, her earning capacity, her opportunities to get further education, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we think about working women, the question of whether or not we have children, I think is really, really integral to what our experience will be as working women, which is the vast majority of women
0: now. And the truth is, when you think about so much of the debate that happens, right, so much of the debate about care, child care, abortion rights, reproductive rights, it all is the bedrock idea of choice, Mm -hmm. that women have a choice, that you should be able to make whatever choice you want. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to have this conversation where people need to be able to make choices, there's all different ways to be a woman, then if you make that choice, if that is your choice or, you know, life circumstances happen, if that is your life path, then you should have as much validation because here we are fighting for women to have that choice. We can't then circle around and take them down for it or judge.
1: Right. Exactly. If we're fighting for women to be able to have the choice ultimately about how our lives play out, (laughs) And the choices, I suppose that again, the choice about whether or not to become a parent is going to impact so many of our other choices and so much of our agency when it comes to other choices we might want to make for ourselves. Yeah, it's not really something we can turn away from. I would think about, you know, there's a chapter in my book, I just titled it Enough. (laughs) Because I think so much of the second wave feminist movement, like a big message was, let's make it so that women can have careers and have children, you know, and that sort of came to be almost the definition of having it all being able to be a mother and to also have a, And when I say career, I mean, a fulfilling career with some kind of a trajectory where ideally we may be able to bring our gifts versus the sort of like hourly waged labor that women have traditionally done which often falls under the um, the larger umbrella of like care work whether it's nursing even whether it's secretarial work teaching teaching etc these kind of very f- more female type careers typically are not so well paid. Don't come with decent benefits packages, prestige, an opportunity to bring our creativity to the fore, et cetera. So the movement for women to be able to have it all included, get an education, actually think about what kind of a career you might want to pursue. Think about how you might want to bring your gifts to the world. And guess what? Okay. And you can also be a mom. But as I point out in my book, so long as the avenue of non-motherhood is closed off, whether that's due to literally closed off because of, you know, no access to abortion rights, for example, at the most sort of extreme example, or whether it's closed off in an ideological sense, meaning women without kids are somehow seen as deviant, defective or less than, which is often the sort of underlying, I suppose, feeling tone around women who don't have children, especially as long as that path is closed off, then women who want to have a career have really had no option but to do it all, right? Um, and actually, it's only very, very well-resourced women who also get to have almost as like a, the third wheel, I suppose, you know, there's the, the career, the kids, and then the third piece of having it all is full-on, hands-on, possibly full-time, you know, nanny situation, like caregivers, so for that version of having it all is actually only available to a very, very small percentage of women realistically. And so for, I would say the majority of women, there does come a moment, like, do I have the capacity to do it all? If I'm going to put whatever I need to in my, into my career to advance myself in a professional sense, am I going to have enough left in my tank to also be a mother? And I think that's somewhere that a lot of that's the sticking point for a lot of women. And I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing such a rise in the numbers of women without kids among Gen X women and younger. Gen X being the first generation of women who were really raised with that message, like you can do other things besides be a mother and besides, you know, just pursue this very kind of
0: menial sort of, you know, hourly
1: waged work.
0: I think that generation also was raised with the idea of what it means to be a woman is very fluid. What it means to be a mother is very fluid. So it brings agency to the choices that you're making and how expensive it is. And I I just want to point out as well, like we, again, going back to the second shift, here's a company that was built primarily for you being your best self as a woman and having control of your own career path. Whatever else you are in the world, mother, daughter, sister, spouse, partner, anything, that is all part of you, but it's not a defining (laughs) characteristic of you. And I think in this world today, it's like we shine a spotlight on different aspects of what a person is and not the totality of who you are. And you need your whole self to be the best version of yourself. But an interesting fact, and I read this in your book, was that and I, and I know I've talked about this before in some version of some of the things we've done and through the second shift is that women who do not have children are actually more successful in the workplace than women with kids because there's, a, I mean, and actually more successful and make more money than men who have children. And it's like, such an interesting place to see just how the world shifts and and where we are winding up that we're in a place where like if you are like I'm a career driving this is what I want these are my goals the pathway that is open to you there where I think, you know, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, it, it wasn't that you would have been stigmatized differently in the workplace. So it, it is just like this really interesting time to see how all the pieces of evolution are of society and cultural norms are shaking themselves out. And have you seen that backed up in like in your community and the research that you've been doing in terms of your book? Yes.
1: One thing I will say, I think that women who don't have children still very much experience a degree of stigma in the workforce. I still think that for a woman to pursue her career above and beyond family life is still often seen as maybe a little overly ambitious. Maybe she's a little cold. Some people behind her back might say she's misguided or delusional. She'll regret it at some point that she won't ever truly be fulfilled. And I, I say this as somebody who doesn't have children, who sort of feels these projections <laughs> and, and sees them written out in quite obnoxious form on social media. <laughs> so I do think those attitudes, as much as so much has been done to change those attitudes and that stigma and to break down the stigma, I think there's still a lot of work to be done around that. And I think having these kinds of conversations is part of how we do that, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting you touch on the sort of, I mean, the gender pay gap has been revealed really to be a motherhood pay gap. Because yes, working mothers earn significantly less than their male counterparts, whereas women without kids often earn on a par and in some instances out earn their male colleagues. And so I think that's just a very stark sort of illustration of the impact on a woman's earning capacity, career prospects, Etc. the impact that becoming a mother inevitably has. And at the, the most sort of extreme ends of the spectrum, like a woman becoming a single parent, for example, I mean, she's four times more likely to experience poverty. And this comes simply down to the fact that she's not going to have enough time, energy, and other resource available to support herself, support her child and do what she needs to do to earn a living wage a lot of the time. So yeah, these are, there's a real stark reality when it comes to weighing up these choices. Like how does my desire to even create financial stability for myself, to have my own retirement savings and retirement plan in place, like how is that going to be impacted by me becoming a parent? Even if I'm in a partnership where i'm supported by a partner or or where my partner and i are kind of like operating as equals how is my mothering my role as a mother going to prevent me from contributing in an equal way and then what happens if that relationship ends I mean, so many that, you know, thanks to the divorce boom of the 1980s, so many Gen X and millennial women who are kind of in the peak of our career, like earning years now, have been, have witnessed firsthand how um, what's the word? <laughs> right. Okay. So how, <laughs> how, how destabilizing yes. it can be when. A mother is left to do the majority of the mothering as a single parent, even if she's receiving alimony, even if she's receiving childcare support, like there's still, and again, I'll speak for myself here. There was still a sense of just underlying financial anxiety, you know, and that's a real hangover from previous generations when many women were very literally dependent on their, on their husbands for their income, you know, for their material stability So I think it's absolutely valid for anybody to decide to prioritize their own financial stability over becoming a parent, even though for some people that might be a very, very difficult choice and feel like, yeah, almost like they're stuck between a rock and a hard
0: place. You say that, I want to get this right that the the increase in women without kids can be seen as like broken down into three different tent poles of, of why, which is like a third is empowerment. A third is self-preservation and a third is birth strike. Mm. So can you dive into those three things and define yeah. them? So that, that
1: line kind of came into clarity right at the end of the writing process. It's in the introduction to the book, which I wrote as the last thing. And so first of all, empowerment, But the fact that across the board, in every single country around the world, even in countries where the population is still increasing, individual women are having fewer children. And increasingly, that finds women having no children at all. This is down primarily, first and foremost, to the empowerment of women, meaning women actually having agency and say over when they have children, if they have children at all, and if they do, with whom and under what circumstances. When given that option, women have fewer children. And like I said, increasingly women are having no children at all. So there's the empowerment piece. Self-preservation speaks more to what I was just talking about. You know, the reality is that when you become a parent, once you have dependents, you need others that you can depend on, whether that's a partner in the home, whether that's a wider sort of like supportive family network, or whether that's a social safety net. That was also going to provide you with some of your needs, and so when those support structures aren't in place, when there is no no partner to kind of like pick up the slack, when there when perhaps you're estranged or not that close to a wider family network, when there is no social support structure, deciding not to bring someone into the world who will be dependent on you is an act of self preservation, because you must depend on yourself when you don't have those support structures in place, and that is the case for so many of us in this. Increasingly, very individualistic society where self-sufficiency and independence are seen as positive traits, right? So there's the self-preservation piece. And in terms of birth strike, I mean, there was an official birth strike movement out of the UK, and this was a group of women. So this, well, they disbanded in 2020. I'll tell you the full story. So this was a group of women who were saying, "We are going on strike. We're not having any children." until world leaders can reach consensus and begin to take serious action on climate change. It was about the climate. Now they disbanded in 2020 because they said their message was too often being interpreted as overpopulation is the problem. People need to stop having kids. That's how we fix the climate. They were saying, no, the problem is not people, it's not there being more people. The problem is how people consume energy And the problem there is how energy is provided and how it is utilized in industry, right? So their message got a bit twisted, so they disbanded. But I think the birth strike piece is still very relevant, especially in a country like the US, where there is just like, it just seems to be absolutely impossible for there to be any movement on things like paid parental leave, free healthcare, free universal childcare, the kinds of things, the kinds of investments that parents actually need To feel supported in their parenting. And I think that in some ways we can read more and more people, younger generations, especially saying, you know what? I don't think I'm going, I don't think I'm I'm going to be able to raise a child in these conditions, as a sort of involuntary, not involuntary, um, what's the word? Um, A spontaneous birth strike. There is almost a sense of until conditions improve for parents, until there are more support structures put in place, then we're going to have to go with the self-preservation and really reconsider the size of the families we have, the age that which we'll have the children, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the birth strike piece is, yeah, I think can be read as a sort of a protest in a way about the fact that it can be so difficult and that so much, so much of the, the labor of child rearing is still classified very much as a very gender, heavily gendered labor of love. That people should just be able to do just the way that we breathe, the way that we, you know, communicate with one. It should just come naturally to us. When actually the reality is that child rearing is an incredibly expensive and costly endeavor, especially when you take into account the impact that it has on an individual's earning capacity.
0: I was thinking about there's so much in the press, and there's so much light that's been shown on you know, the motherhood penalty and the the mental load, invisible labor, the discrepancies between inequalities in marriages between, you know, heterosexual couples. Mm-hmm. And just, if you're looking at that, which I think on the one hand, it's great to have these conversations and to shine a light, but I could see if you are a younger person looking at the road ahead of you and seeing all of these things, not having a child is almost like, rejecting the idea of motherhood because it's like what would be the benefit of that? Why would I right. do that? All you see is like women trying to drink all day like, you know, joking about how hard it is and expensive and how it's driving you to drink and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and especially coming out of the pandemic where it was like motherhood disaster. Mhm. It would be a very in some ways but it's a matter deterrent. Yeah, yes. deterrent. But also, <laughs> you're like, what? So the, that doesn't seem good. And
1: especially if you're potentially speaking, you're speaking of generations who potentially have come from homes where there has been divorce. Maybe the families have become estranged. Like maybe home and family doesn't feel like something really I necessarily ambitious? even... But right, they're exactly. just really
0: ambitious exactly. women or families who are like, I want to have a really nice life. And like, I know a lot of couples who don't have children or not even couples, women who don't have children and they are successful and they have lovely friends and lovely lives. And you're like, wow, on the other side, looking at that and saying, you know, there, there's something to be said there. So I could see both sides of this conversation because it is all playing out so publicly now through Mm -hmm. the media, social media, podcasts. And and I think that's great. It's just, it, it definitely changes the norm.
1: Absolutely. And I think that, yes, the fact that women, mothers are being more vocal about how hard it is to be a parent, the sacrifices that they have had to make, the challenges that they're faced with, the lack of support that they receive, the lack of understanding that they receive, To then hear somebody say, oh, but it's all worth it when I get a cuddle from my five-year-old. or It just feels like, "Mm, okay, all of this, though, weighed against the benefits of being a parent. Like if you're doing a logistical cost-benefit analysis, then motherhood doesn't come out looking that good. And do we want these women to shut up? Do we want women to stay quiet again and start pretending again that it's all okay and that it's all worth it? I mean... (laughs) When Valium was first marketed in like the 1960s, it wasn't called Mother's Little Helper for nothing. You know, if you think about like how much women have put up and shut up with unfair working conditions, particularly in the realm of motherhood. I think people have absolutely are in their rights to talk about how difficult it is. And what we need is not to say, oh, but you know, but start bigging up how great it is to be a parent too. We need to improve working conditions for mothers. And that's where the the birth strike piece comes back into play. It's
0: just interesting because we're living in a time where we've been talking about so much has shifted and changed. So, but we're still living in the structure, both like governmentally, socially from an other era. So mm-hmm. what, you know, now what we thought about marriage and marriage was for financial security. It was for, you know, between families and power, it was for procreation. And now marriage can be because you love somebody and you want to be with them and sex is for pleasure and it doesn't have to be for procreation. And so we've upended all of these ideas without actually changing what the structure is behind it on how... It actually gets done or or how we think about things.
1: Yes, exactly. That's such an important point. And so I think again, until we actually are able to talk about these things and bring them into the light, we can't start to think about how to create new structures to support the ways that people actually want to live and the things that people actually need, you know, to enjoy a comfortable, pleasurable, easeful existence, which ultimately has been the goal of so much innovation, right? Mm -hmm. It's been the goal supposedly of so much. I think about this in relation to AI, right? The goal of AI is to make human lives easier. I mean, I'm sure that (laughs) In its sort of highest octave, right? The goal of creating AI, for example, is to take away the drudge work from human beings and that computers and machines do all of that so that humans can have more free time. They can have more time to connect, more time to enjoy their lives, more time to put into creative pursuits. But that's not actually what's going to happen because ultimately the real goal of AI is to create more profit for the companies and the corporations, the industries that are able to replace human labor power with technologies that they don't have to pay a living wage or pay healthcare or pay any sort of support to. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think a lot about what are the goals of the progress that has been made socially, economically, in terms of industry, and how is that actually reflected in the way that people are living their lives and the experiences of individuals on the ground? It doesn't feel for all of the innovation of the past 150 years that life has necessarily got easier.
0: I mean, especially for parents, especially yeah. for parents. <laughs> so tell me your story. I'm I'm curious on how, you know, how you wound up. You This is not your first book. This is not the first... Taboo topic you've sort of put out into the ethos that's caught on. You have podcasts. For those who don't know you, tell me your your story to get here.
1: So my background is in journalism, and I've always been just very interested in social trends and honestly what makes people tick and why we are the way we are. And so I transitioned into writing books back in 2017 when my first book came out. My best known book is probably Sober Curious, which she was sort of just almost sort of starting to reference. So that was a concept, a term rather that I coined to describe my my own evolving relationship with alcohol, probably 10, 11 years ago now. And yeah, I wanted to invite anybody and everybody to reevaluate how they were using alcohol and the role that it played in their life without necessarily having to get to a point where it was so bad that you have to stop and you are identifying as an alcoholic and you must be in recovery for alcohol addiction. I think for many people, alcohol, drinking, the way that we use it can be problematic without it becoming a drinking problem, if that makes sense. And so Sober Curious was an invitation to anybody and everybody to really make a sort of clear-eyed assessment of whether alcohol and the way they're using it was serving them in the the way that they wanted to in their life. So I did two books on that. And there's a podcast as well, Sober Curious Progress, which has been on hiatus while I've been promoting and sort of launching the new book, Women Without Kids. But yeah, I think that, I mean, I was raised in a very unconventional family. You know, my parents actually never lived together, um, even when they were still married. No one in my family ever had like a full-time job. like a wage job with a, with a pension plan attached and they're sort of entrepreneurial artist types, one and all. And so I think, yeah, this gave me a sort of unconventional eye on life. And it meant that, I don't know, I've been able to, I suppose, almost from an outsider's perspective, just pick at like, why do we do things that way? Or why do certain conventions exist Why are they in place? Who do they serve? Who do they not serve? What happens when we're sort of living our lives to fit certain boxes or to appear a certain way? And what happens when that goes counter to who we actually are and what we actually need? And so that's sort of been a bit of a through line of my work, I suppose. And in terms of women without kids, I knew from a very early age that I didn't want to be a mother, or at least I knew that there were many things I wanted to pursue in my life. Motherhood just wasn't on that list. It wasn't like I was actively rejecting motherhood. It just wasn't something I felt drawn to. And I actually feel like the reason I was able to stay really true to that was because my parents didn't ever put any pressure on me to become a parent. They never implied that that is something I should do, that that would be something they expected of me. And so I was able to quite confidently stay true to what felt true to me. But I experienced so much questioning from the outside world. And it became very clear to me that choosing not to be a parent was seen as very odd, that people had a lot of opinions about this, that people had projections about what this would mean for me and felt very entitled to tell me <laughs> how wrong I had got it and how I, would, how I deluded I was and how I would be missing out and, you know, all of these things. And I suppose I reached an age in my early 40s where yeah looking ahead to menopause honestly and sort of wondering what that next phase would mean for me realizing that i actually had i had no regrets about reaching That's the end amazing. of my reprodu- reproductive years it didn't feel like anything was missing there was no sense of panic that it was now or never that i'd missed out on this thing and i felt so grateful to have always been able to just stay true to what felt right to me and to pursue all the other things that I have been interested in. And yeah, I guess I became very curious at that point about why it is still so taboo and why there is still so much stigma around being a woman without kids, particularly given, like I said, that the birth rate is declining rapidly all around the world, and that more and more women are choosing this path, which traditionally has been very othered, very outsider-ish, and seen as very unusual. You know, for example, in my research, I realized that 50% of women under the age of 45 in the US don't have children. Now, granted, many of them, particularly women who are in their 20s and 30s, may go on to have children. Increasingly, they'll only have one child, single child families is one of the fastest growing demographics in the United States. And so, yeah, I felt this sort of felt to me like actually we're evolving to a place where this isn't so unusual anymore. More and more women are on this path, whether they actively chose that or it sort of just didn't happen for them. So, yeah, how can we start to celebrate this and valorize this path as being equally valid to that of mother you know especially and then and then you know i really applied all of my sort of journalistic training to the subject matter to really get deep into all of the factors that are influencing this shift
0: well i was very curious but before we were going to speak about it i was you know researching the book and just understanding more about the perspective of women who don't have kids. And so mm. I was, I went on to read all of the commentary about your book on mm. Amazon. And it's actually fascinating because the women are so, and the people who are, I assume most of them are women are so grateful to have had somebody have the conversation to break it down, to feel less stigmatized to feel that this is like validated in their choices or just lifestyle life, Mm -hmm. how life Mm -hmm. works out. You know, there's, there's lots of different reasons why women don't have children. You must feel so good to have sparked this conversation that is really helping people and starting, you know, a dialogue in, in culture and helping to make a change for the better for other women who are in a similar position.
1: Does feel good. I don't read my Amazon reviews because you
0: should. They're amazing. Way. They're thank so you. <laughs> good. Honestly, all these women are. These people are like, thank you. This is the best book I've ever read. I'm so excited. I mean, I I didn't know what to expect because you never know. And I was like, what if there's all these haters or you know, uh, we've gotten lots of people who are like you know say nasty things about the second shift, but it was you you now it was universally amazing. So you really hit something. I do receive
1: here. many messages like personally, emails and DMs and things of people expressing the sorts of gratitude that you're talking about. So that does feel really good. Like ultimately, I mean, the, the subhead of the book is um the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood. And I think there is this very much this feeling that my life doesn't matter, my life is invisible of being marginalized when you've pursued a different path for whatever reasons than than what is the norm, which is still, honestly, to be married with children is the norm. And so that's been great. I experienced that kind of in-person. I led a retreat a couple of weeks ago, an in-person retreat, and I had 26 women, women from all across what I call the motherhood spectrum. So people who had actively chosen not to become parents, people who it hadn't worked out for, people who had undergone multiple rounds of IVF and just kind of come to the end of that process a woman who was fostering a child and really not enjoying it, but also not wanting it to end and feeling very conflicted about that. And ranging in age from early 30s to early 60s, it was a really diverse group. And again, unanimously, what I heard was, I needed this so badly. I feel like I'm the only one. I feel so lonely and alienated in this orientation. And so it was amazing to have that group experience where we just bonded so quickly over all being women without kids.
0: Everyone wants to be seen and heard. Yes, People yes. want to feel that they're part of a wider community, that, that they're, they're not alone. That they recognized, that they matter, yeah. that they have a place. We
1: all need to belong. That's such a fundamental human need is to belong. And it's one of the things, as I talk about in the book, that does make motherhood so appealing. When you have a child, you are creating somebody who you will belong to no matter what. And regardless of how dysfunctional that relationship might ultimately be, this person will be in your life regardless. Even people who are estranged from their parents for, for decades, there's still an awareness that this person is out there. This person is part of my life. You know, I'm connected to yeah. them in some way.
0: Let me ask you and then I, I will allow you to go on with your, <laughs> with your busy day, but I, I, this is such a fascinating topic for me because I think mm. about there's so much put into the, you know, are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you a working mom? You know, do you have kids? Do you not have kids? All of these like sort of faux dramas that are dividing women mm. into different binary camps. And like we said, you just, people want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want community. They want to, they don't want to be lonely. They want to know that their choices are validated. But what is your opinion on why women do this? And as a former journalist, me too, I'm like, is it a construct of the media? Is it, and just some sort of click headline that we're keep pumping out stories that are creating a false narrative Is it, because I don't have any judgment on anybody for anything they do, but if you read the headlines or is it like a self-hating thing where you're, you know, you're so maybe unhappy in your life choices that you have to like sort of judge others. What's your take on why we create these polarized conversations and especially around women, Mm. around women and by women? Yes.
1: Indeed. I mean, I think it's a combination of many of the things that you touched on there. In the book, I talk about the mummy binary and you have sort of the mums in one camp who are more valid, honestly, who have fulfilled their duty, who will experience true love, who are somehow completed by their children. And then you have the non-mums in the other camp who are sort of defective or deviant, or just got unlucky or a kind of sad, destined to be sort of lonely and unloved and then within the camp of non-mums you also have a binary between childless women who couldn't have the children they maybe wanted and child free women who have actively chosen not to have children and again there are all sorts of prejudices about the binary there and so yeah in terms of where does this come from I think a lot of it is around very very rooted in very ancient patriarchal conditioning around what is a woman's role in society. This speaks to the gender binary, where men are the kind of like, you know, aggressive, macho providers, and women are the soft, nurturing caretakers. And so that's deeply rooted in patriarchy. We all have remnants of that within our systems, within our psyches, certainly within, you know, government, corporations, etc, etc. And that conditioning is very deep and it takes so much conscious will to undo it. That said, if you've got a group of women in a room together, mothers and non-mothers, and people were actually given the space to tell their story, you would hear so much nuance about people's experiences of both motherhood and non-motherhood. And it would very quickly become apparent that there is no divide. They are all just human beings trying to make it work under the circumstances in which we're operating, you know?
0: I love that. We are all just human beings. Yeah, (laughs) We have so much more in common than we have differences. We so do. And I see that consistently. And, you know, I think about that all the time when you read things that are going against that.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, like social media and online media in general is all about clickbait. It's all about the clicks. And we know there's repeatedly research will come out that shows what gets clicks is what gets people angry. And so seeding divisiveness, which is, you know, divisiveness is the result of prejudice. So the more we can bolster prejudices, meaning our prejudgments about this camp or that camp and what these choices mean about them and what this says about them, the more anger and divisiveness is is, is kind of like created. And that ultimately is what keeps people clicking on headlines. It what keeps click rates high, advertising rates. high. I mean, it comes back again to, you know, the kind of endless pursuit of profit over actual humanity, peace of mind, humanity and peace of mind. Yeah.
0: Ruby, thank you for writing this book because what you've done is try to bring light to people who feel like they're in a shadow, to explain it, to make it human, to have everybody be able to validate their own experience and choices and life, and Mm -hmm. to create a community around people who should feel that they are seen and heard. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for reading it. And thanks for offering me this space to talk about it and bring it to the second shift.
0: And also, I really enjoy your the podcast that you have as well and the the different, breaking this down into like very specific topics and having guests on to talk about each of the things that in some ways we've talked about in totality, but breaking it down. So it's great. I'm going to put all this information into the notes on the podcast so people can find you and find the book. And I, I really, I I loved this.
1: Me too. It's been really great meeting you. Thanks again. It was so nice
0: to meet you too. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.